Hello and welcome to the Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we continue in the play titled The Sievers, which is the last in the trilogy called The Silverfields of Northbrook. We are in scene two, which is titled Little League. It's the summer of 1959. Northbrook, Illinois was an up-and-coming village in the 1950s. It was one of many burgeoning post-war suburban communities north and west of Chicago. Formerly prolific cornfields, these new greenfield towns included Glenview and Northfield. On the east side of the Edens Expressway, which delivered families and visitors from Chicago, was Wilmette, Glencoe, and Highland Park, the established expensive lakefront towns. The Northbrook Star, a weekly newspaper, told the village's sports stories. Its legendary programs produced professional baseball players and Olympic speed skaters. Michael Silverfield began his little league life at seven. The base age was eight, but Stanley took him to tryouts a year early. No one inquired about age, and Michael made the local Culligan Softwater minor league team at seven. Michael's five seasons included two minor league years and three in the big time with Crookshank Service Station, Adams Drugs, and Culligan Softwater, and apostrophed listings in the local box scores. This scene is a post-game pizza place, Antonio's, to celebrate a Michael home run. A lefty first baseman, outfielder, and pitcher, he hoped to follow Sandy Koufax to the major leagues. It was just weeks ago that Michael had joined his uncle Norman Gordon and Scott Fleischman, also a nephew, at Chicago Standard Club for the annual baseball night. Always a Friday, before the wealthy families sent their boys to months of summer camp, it was big time for a suburban kid. Big buses, police escorts, Comiskey Park for the Bronx bombing Yankees, Mandel Maris and the lefty Whitey Ford. Michael was a day camper at Tacoma. Summer mornings were school bus rides to a new large landscape full of sports days of baseball and swimming. As the scene opens, Michael steps under a single shadow cast light to read his letter to the Stearns. And he begins, Dear Aunt Lucille and Uncle Lester, I hit a home run last night. What a thrill. Everyone saw it. Cindy shouted, Now we get pizza. I might be a power hitter with a few inches and pounds. For now, we'll have a celebration pizza. My little league years have been good. I'm confident about my game. I love pitching, but I'm probably a center fielder with decent range and speed. There are lots of guys my age who play well. If I don't get bigger, the high school team might be out of reach. Dad said we're going to the batting cages this weekend, and that's great. I know he's busy with work. I'll close. I love and miss you, Michael. As the scene converts, the Silverfields sit in their favorite pizza place, Antonio's, chatting and choosing the celebratory pies. And the conversation begins with the king. Great game, son. You powered that pitch deep into the night. I'm proud of you. Thanks, Dad. I saw that pitch so well. 
the swing felt very smooth. And surely, Michael, that was incredible. You seemed to float around the bases full of joy. And Sister Cindy, Daddy, everyone around us was so excited when Michael hit the homer. Can we order pizza now? I'm really hungry. And Michael, thanks, Mom. I'm so glad that you, Dad, and Cindy were at the game. As the lights dim on this scene and the Silverfields sit happily awaiting their celebratory pizzas and a review of Michael's home run, it's important to recognize that Sandy Koufax was one of Michael's heroes throughout their respective lives. Forty-two years after Michael's Little League career ended in 1960, Harper Collins published a very good book by a writer named Jane Levy about Sandy Koufax, titled Sandy Koufax, A Lefty's Legacy. Levy chronicles Koufax's life while describing in great detail a perfect game that the lefty threw at the Chicago Cubs on September 9th, 1965, at Wrigley Field. The book jacket begins, In an era when too many heroes have been toppled from too many pedestals, Sandy Koufax stands apart and alone, a legend who declined his own celebrity. As a pitcher, he was sublime, the ace of baseball lore. As a human being, he aspired to be the one thing his talent and his fame wouldn't allow, a regular guy. A Brooklyn kid, he was the product of the sedate and modest 50s who came to define and dominate baseball in the 60s. In Sandy Koufax, A Lefty's Legacy, former award-winning Washington Post sports writer Jane Levy delivers an uncommon baseball book, vividly recreating the Koufax era when presidents were believed and pitchers aspired to go the distance. The preface to Levy's book, titled The Poet and the Pitcher, begins this way. I didn't go to the Library of Congress searching for Sandy Koufax. I went for a poetry reading in support of a friend. Also, there was the promise of free food. Sports writers will go anywhere for free food. I was just back from fantasy camp at Vero Beach, Florida, the winter home of the Los Angeles Dodgers, where I first met Koufax and several of his former teammates. Clem Labine, an estimable pitcher in his own right, had tutored me in the physics of the Koufax curveball, explaining how he held the ball without his thumb, rolling it off his uncommonly long fingers with such velocity and spin that when the ball met the wind, the air cried. I was attempting to demonstrate the proper grip to my friend, Jane Shore, a poet who had not yet recovered from seeing Mike Mussina beamed on the mound at Camden Yards. An unexpected enthusiast exclaimed, Sandy Koufax? I devised Sandy Koufax. Jane introduced me to Robert Pinsky, the poet laureate of the United States. I was too unlettered to get his illusion, and Pinsky was too polite to make a point of it. He turned to a student clutching a copy of his collected works, and borrowing the volume, opened it to page 86. The Night Game, 
is a poem about sex and imagination, green grass and stadium lights that turn night into day. It is about the act of creation and new love possibility. Koufax is not so much its subject as its solution. The solution to an emotion, Pinsky said. Once, when he was young, Pinsky saw Sandy Koufax pitch at Ebbets Field. He doesn't remember much about the game, just that it was night that he sat along the third baseline, that he knew who Koufax was. It was probably 1955, Sandy's rookie year. Pinsky remembers the green of the grass and blue satin shimmering against the white flannel of Koufax's shirt and how the fabric wrinkled with exertion. He does not remember who won, whether Koufax started or relieved. Years later, when Pinsky was teaching writing at the University of California at Berkeley, someone sent him a poster of Koufax pitching. A study in kinetic sculpture, midway through his delivery, coiled and balanced on his back leg, his foot the only point of contact with the earth. Pinsky hung the poster on his office door. In the arc and force of the pitcher's motion, Pinsky saw everything he wanted his students to know about writing. Balance and concentration, a supremely synchronized effort, the transfer of energy toward a single elusive goal. Pinsky is a sturdy man with a square jaw, a poet whose father was a catcher for the Jewish Aces, a New Jersey barnstorming team. Surrounded by his fans, people who don't confuse the poetry of baseball with iambic pentameter, he raised his arm above a tray of canopies, attempting to replicate the impossible angle of bone and ball just prior to release. You can't really do it, he sighed, lowering his arm. It was like a catapult, elegance followed by violence. I never saw Sandy Koufax pitch. My father, who grew up on Coogan's Bluff rooting for the New York Giants, made me what I am today, a Yankee fan, by refusing to take me to Ebbets Field before the Dodgers left Brooklyn. I was probably the only Jewish kid in New York who didn't root for Koufax. I rooted for the Gentiles in the Bronx instead. A fate sealed by the proximity of my grandmother's apartment to the house that Ruth built. I watched the World Series from the second-floor ballroom of the Concourse Plaza Hotel during high holiday services. I went to synagogue to pray the Yankees wouldn't have to face Sandy Koufax. Though I was a devoted subscriber to Life magazine, I don't remember seeing the August 1963 issue with him on the cover. It is an iconic Norman Rockwell treatment. At age 10, I somehow failed to notice his importance. I was a Yankee fan first, a Jew second. I was assimilated. I did not feel compelled by Judaism to place him above baseball. Twenty years later, I was covering the U.S. Open tennis matches for the Washington Post on Young Kipper. It was the day the Korean airliner was shot down over Soviet airspace. Deadlines were tight. I remember feeling pressured and something else, a discomfort in my own skin. I remember thinking, Sandy Koufax didn't pitch on Young Kippur. I have not worked on the high holidays since. Sandy Koufax made himself at home in my soul. I was not alone. 
In the summer of 1996, Farrar Straussi Giraud published a new collection of poetry by Robert Pinsky. Titled The Figured Wheel, it covered 30 years of Pinsky's work from 1966 to 1996. One of the poems in that collection is titled The Night Game. Pinsky wrote, Some of us believe we would have conceived romantic love out of our own passions with no precedence, without songs and poetry, or have invented poetry and music as a comb of cells for the honey. Shaped by ignorance, a succession of new worlds, congruities improvised by immigrants or children. I once thought most people were Italian, Jewish, or colored. To be white and called something like Ed Ford seemed aristocratic, a rare distinction. Possibly I believed only Gentiles and blondes could be left-handed. Already famous after one year in the majors, Whitey Ford was drafted by the Army to play ball in the flannels of the Signal Corps, stationed in Long Branch, New Jersey. A night game, the silver potion of the lights, his pink skin shining like a burn. Never a player I liked or hated, a Yankee, a mere success. But white, the chalked-off lines in the grass. White and green, the immaculate uniform, and white, the unpigmented halo of his hair when he shifted his cap. So ordinary and distinct, so close up that I felt as if I could have made him up, imagined him as I imagined the ball, a scintilla high in the black backdrop of the sky. Tight red stitches, Rawlings, the bleached, horse-hide white, the color of nothing color of the past and of the future, of the movie screen at rest and of blank paper. I could have the mind, the black backdrop, the white fly picked out of the towering lights. A few years later, on a blanket in the grass by the same river, a girl and I came into being together to the faint muttering of unthinkable troubadours and radios. The Emerald Theater, the night, Another time, I devised a left-hander even more gifted than Whitey Ford, a dodger. People were amazed by him. Once, when he was young, he refused to pitch on Yom Kippur. Twenty-seven years after the publication of Pinsky's collection, titled The Figured Wheel, a Sports Illustrated magazine cover hangs in our apartment. Sandy Koufax is on the cover. It's the baseball issue, dated April 13th, 1964. It's a beautiful color painting of Koufax by an artist named Bernie Fuchs. The price, 30 cents. And as we continue to consider the life and legacy of Sandy Koufax, we have reached the end of this scene entitled Little League, in the play The Seavers, within the trilogy entitled The Silver Fields of Northbrook. And you are listening to The Silver King's War. <laughs> 